I'm Autumn Lockett. And this is Mitch Randall. And you're listening to Good Faith Weekly. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, Autumn and I are going to catch up after me being gone for a week. Then we're going to talk about the first election, major election, after last year's presidential election. We're also going to talk about what's going on at the Supreme Court in the cases that the justices are hearing over the last few weeks. Talk about vaccines for children. Yay, yay. We're excited about uh, that rolling down the pike. And lots more to come in this episode. Later on in the pod, Autumn and I sat down with Dr. Lenore Wright from Baylor University. She's got a new book out entitled Athena to Barbie, and it is a wonderful read. So you want to stay tuned for our conversation with Dr. Wright. Hey, Autumn, guess what time of year it is? Halloween. No. Thanksgiving? No. It's too early for Christmas. People keep telling me. It is a little too early for Christmas. No, it's the time of year when nonprofits ask for money. You know, Mitch, I'm glad you brought that up. Well, it is an exciting time of year because even here at Good Faith Media, we need to, from time to time, ask our listeners and readers to help support this great effort of keeping this message alive. Yeah, the voices of inclusive people of faith are tragically underrepresented, leaving many feeling alone. And then we layered in this global pandemic, which pushed all of us further into isolation. But... Good Faith Media provides a space for our voices to unite and impact the world for good. And our daily news and opinion pieces provide thoughtful reflection from spiritual and thoughtful leaders around the world. Our Nurturing Faith Journal is a print magazine that circulates six times a year to churches and households nationwide, delivering thoughtful analysis, inspiring features, and Jesus focused Bible study curriculum. And if you like this podcast, Good Faith Weekly, make certain to subscribe to more exciting and challenging podcasts brought to you by the Good Faith Media Podcast Network. Gather around your device as GFM continues advocating for inclusion for all, justice for all, and freedom for all. You can find more information about this at goodfaithmedia.org forward slash donate. Autumn, I'm back for my trip. New York City, baby. How was New York? It was wonderful. Well, before we went to New York, we popped up to uh, New Hampshire to see our youngest, uh, who's at school, and uh, had a great time with him. First time we'd been back on campus since the pandemic. It's crazy. We dropped him off as a freshman, and we went back. He's a junior. It just was like a blink of an eye, but uh, it was kind of mm-hmm. surreal. Uh, we feel like, uh, as even as parents, we know that he's certainly missed a whole lot more than we have, but even as parents, we felt like we've missed out on, on his college experience, but it was so good to be up there and on campus and meet some other, uh, f- uh, parents as well as, uh, his, his friends and other students. It was just, it was really nice. And then we popped down to New York and met my parents in the big apple to see some shows and we had a really good time with them. So, but it's always g- good to be back home. Every time I go to New York and then I come back home to Norman, I'm like, if those people in New York knew how easy it was to live life in Norman, Oklahoma, and how cheap it was to live life in Norman, Oklahoma, they would all move to Norman. So we have to be quiet. We can't tell those folks in the cities how easy life is here. <laughs> and they would say back to me, right? They would say back to me, yes, but we have the Met and we have Broadway <laughs> right. and we have, and I get that. But anyway, it's just, it's sort of that country mouse, city mouse story. Sure. Well, I am uh, happy to report that New York City's coming back to life. I talked to a lot Good. of uh, the citizens there in New York and a lot of New Yorkers are saying that, you know, it's starting to, to feel like, you know, the, the city's back. Broadway is, is starting to perform. And we went to some shows. Broadway did a great job uh, with their COVID protocol. You had to show your vaccine card as well as wear a mask to every production. Uh, the staff was there always reminding uh, patrons to make certain to pull up their mask over their nose. But it was it was really great, and uh, we had a good time. But uh, like I said, good to be back. Well, lots going on in the news this week, Autumn. We had our first uh, election after last year's presidential election, and surprise for the Democrats. Uh, they took it on the nose last night, both in Virginia and New Jersey. We don't know the outcome of the Virginia gubernatorial race right now, but uh, right now the Republican candidate who is going against the incumbent is leading by a fraction. And in Virginia, the Republican beat incumbent Terry McAuliffe uh, uh, pretty handedly. So, uh, so yeah, uh, big surprises uh, in the nation. Uh, some people or some pundits are saying that uh, this should be a wake-up call uh, to see what the midterms are going to be like in 2022. 
So what do you make of that? You know, there are folks who talked about the the presidential election swinging the way it did, um, placing a lot of the the reasoning behind that on the pandemic. Do you think that the pandemic had a, a played a role in the way things flipped last night, or or what do you think is going on there? You know, I do think the pandemic played a, a quite a bit of role. I mean, you look at those uh, two races in New Jersey and Virginia, and particularly in Virginia, uh, where uh, Terry McAuliffe uh, was favored at one point and then certainly lost last night. Uh, the issues that people continue to, to talk about in the, in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Uh, a lot of it had to do with uh, the supply chain coming down, economic recovery not occurring as fast as hoped for. Uh, critical race theory was an issue. Uh, mm. you know, the Republican candidate kept talking about you know, families having a say in what's taught in schools, which, you know, most people agree. Uh, McAuliffe made a horrible, horrible statement and gaffe uh, when he said that uh, basically parents should stay away from their local schools. And uh, that cost him greatly, which is a horrible, horrible yeah. thing to say. Uh, but uh, that, you know, it's Democrats have a way of just kind of fumbling the ball once they get power. Uh, and we're, we're kind of seeing that right now. But I do think that uh, the pandemic has has had more of a influence on how we see the future than we think. Um, mm -hmm. I've got an article this week at goodfaithmedia.org entitled, um, Is America Turning Right Again? And I don't know at this point. Um, you know, I think it may not necessarily be a turn to the right as a turn to what is perceived as normalcy, um, maybe mm -hmm. even a return to stability because we've had so much stability, not only in the last two years, but really at this point in the last six years, you had four years of a presidency that was at the very least unorthodox. Uh, and the craziness that ensued from day one when the former president took office to the pandemic and all that ensued during the pandemic, you had the, uh, the um, killing of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and people going to the streets calling out for racial justice, uh, the election itself and the Delta variant and children not being able to get vaccinated to until this week. We're going to talk a little bit about that here in a second. But, you know, I, I think people... I think people are wanting stability. Now, what does that mean, to a return to stability? At what point do you want to return to? And my argument in my piece this week is that I don't think we should return to any of it. I think we should assess every where we are in this country, look at these hard issues that uh, all of us face, both Democrats and Republicans, and try to find solutions and a path forward. We've mm -hmm. got to do that somehow, some way. If we don't, we're going to continue this hyper-partisanship, which is going to continue sending us spiraling downward into an abyss. I don't, I'm not sure we will be able to recover, but I do think that there's hope. So we've got a lot of work to do. I mean, I think yesterday mm -hmm. was, it was a wake-up call for a lot of people. Uh, some people were excited about the, the two victories or the possibility of two victories in the gubernatorial race. Uh, but, you know, there's there's a lot of work for us to do as a country still uh, on both sides of the aisle. And I hope that uh, we are able to do that and to come to some mm -hmm. kind of resolution to, to, to move us forward. So that's what my piece is about this week. And, and so uh, even though I'm, I'm a little bit discouraged, I also have a lot of hope. Yeah. So a lot going on in Washington this week. Uh, SCOTUS has been meeting since uh, October, hearing several different cases. They've been listening to the cases in Texas about their new anti-abortion law. And then to this week they heard a major Second Amendment case uh, on limiting carrying concealed guns in public. Um, this is this is a you know, a big, it seems like uh, Supreme Court's always hearing these big cases. That's why we have a Supreme Court, but it seems particularly right. uh, germane uh, this go around. So we're going to see what comes out of the court because this is the first time since the former president got to appoint three justices during his four years that uh, they'll be able to render their decision. So it's going to be very interesting mm -hmm. to see what comes out of the court. 
it, it is going to be interesting. And it to me, what has been interesting is to see that they're not always predictable, these justices. You know, sometimes they, they get in there and they, they do vote in a different way than you would anticipate. Or they... Um, they'll remark in a way that surprises you. So mm-hmm. I just hope that they'll follow their convictions and actually like listen to what's going on and apply the law in a fair and just way. Yeah, absolutely. So, so stay tuned for decisions coming out of the Supreme Court. It's going to be, like I said, going to be very interesting to see how the court rules on that. Well, let's talk about some positive news. Your yes. kids have appointments to get shots. They sure do. My two boys are old enough. One is five, one is eight. Um, They are old enough to get the COVID vaccine. And so actually this morning, before I hopped on our first meeting of the day, I got them scheduled to have their first and second doses. And I am just elated. They're not going to be real happy because they don't like to get a shot. (laughs) But I'm, I'm just thrilled. That is so exciting. Well, I'm happy for you. I'm happy for all those parents who are You've been looking forward to this time where they can get their their kids vaccinated. So, you know, as Missy and I were talking about this, my wife and I were talking about this the other day. At what point do you think you're going to feel comfortable going out in public not wearing a mask? Oh, my gosh. I I don't know. You know, we... Our kids are all still masking. Mm -hmm. Um, Our oldest is vaccinated, but because we live in a house with... Even after this round, we'll still have a four-year-old who can't be vaccinated yet. And so... We've even told our oldest, like, you know, you don't always have to wear your mask. You can, and she's like, no, I'm wearing it. Yeah. And our boys and our and all of our kids are masking. And we are we are sort of the stand, the holdouts in most of their classrooms. There may be one or two other kids wearing a mask. The teachers are all in masks, which is nice. I, I don't know. I mean, I think everyone's going to have to be vaccinated. And then to that two to three week point right. after. Um, and that's what you know, that's been my I, argument. I, I don't that's, know. That's kind of been my line in the sand. Has been, you know, I believe in the science. I believe, you know, at this point, I've got both uh, doses of the vaccine. Even have a booster now, so I feel particularly um, protected from the virus. The reason I wear a mask is for other people. And right now, little ones like yours are vulnerable to, you know, are susceptible to. Um, getting the virus. So now with them yeah. being able to get vaccinated, I'm wondering, okay, so, you know, how, is it a three week window and then they get, or is it six months before they get to be vaccinated again? for The second dose. Um, It's three weeks. It's three weeks. Yeah. So, so they get first, the first dose. Their first dose is Sunday and their second dose is the Sunday after Thanksgiving. Okay. And then how many weeks after that before I think two. Two weeks. Two weeks. So, you know, we're looking at a couple more months here. So maybe January, you know, am I going to be ready by, you know, first quarter of 2020 to take off the mask in public? And I just don't know. I mean, I I, I believe in the science. I believe I'm protected. I, I believe the vaccine is going to protect your kids and everybody else's kids. Uh, but it's it's a psychological thing for me, to be quite honest with you. Well, it is. And when we live in a state like we live in, where a lot of folks like don't wear their mask as a political sign, right? sometimes I sort of see my mask as a way to show like, hey, I'm wearing this because I care about you and I'm a person who's trying to be safe. Sure. And I want others to know that I'm a safe person. And the way that I'm showing that I'm a safe person is by wearing my mask. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, also, I keep thinking about water droplets in the air. <laughs> Ew, I know. <laughs> I know. This whole pandemic has just got me thinking about uh, shared space a lot differently these days. <laughs> yeah, I had to sit down in the family and say, I just need you all to know that uh, Mitch and I interviewed a pediatrician. This was like about a couple months ago. Mm-hmm. We interviewed a pediatrician for the podcast, and we will never go to an indoor water park again. That's it. <laughs> the end. Like, we're not doing that. Like, fecal matter. I'm like, no, no we're actually no, we're closed done. for business. <laughs> Or like a bowling alley? Like, am I ever going to put my hands in a bowling? No. Right, no. right, right, right. It's, it has definitely made us reconsider things. Sure, absolutely. Well, before we get to our interview, you're getting on a plane this weekend. You and our colleague, uh, Reverend Starlet Thomas, are heading out, heading to a retreat. So tell us a little bit about that. Yes, the CBF of Alabama. Baptist Fellowship. Yes, sorry, yes. Cooperative Baptist Fellowship of Alabama, Georgia, and Florida are converging in Gulf Shores, Alabama. It's the women of CBF, 
and we are having a breathe retreat, which talking about water droplets. I'm like, it's too soon. Can we t- <laughs> can we call it like like the the feel retreat? The breathe, breathing sounds very tricky. You know, have to be vaccinated, have to wear a mask, sure. all those things. And Mitch, they told me to bring a yoga mat, and I'm a little bit nervous about that. <laughs> Uh, well, we expect uh, lots from your Facebook and Instagram uh, feed this yes. week. Yes, <laughs> yes. I'm excited to spend some time. Starlet and I are going to be sharing a bunk bed um, at a at a, a hotel right on the beach. So we're excited about that, and uh, just going to be an interesting time to get to meet with people face to face who we've been interviewing with and interacting with. And CBF is such a great partner, mm-hmm. um, and we're just excited to get to see some people in person. Well, we're going to miss you around here, but we know that uh, you and Starlet are going to have a great time in Gulf Shores and uh, can't wait to hear all about it next week. Well, we sat down with a wonderful scholar from Baylor University this week, Dr. Lenore Wright. She has a new book out entitled Athena to Barbie, which is a wonderful title. Uh, and it's just it's a great book. It, it talks about femininity, it talks about feminism, and uh, she does a great job describing it. And she reads an excerpt of the book uh, later on in the interview. So I think everybody's going to really enjoy it. So stay tuned for Lenore Wright. I'm Reverend Starlet Thomas, a womanist in ministry and the host of the Raceless Gospel podcast from Good Faith Media. It's season two, and we're still talking about that taboo trinity, race, religion, and politics. This season of The Raceless Gospel has eight episodes, eight podcast church services. The doors of this church are open, and we're going to talk about the sticks and stones we carry faithfully that break the skin and bones of Christ's body. And on each episode... We're joined by those who bring perspective and insight as to how we set these broken bones and perhaps make things right. The Raceless Gospel Podcast, eight episodes. I'm your podcast pastor, Reverend Starlet Thomas. Join us as we discuss the church in North America's bodywork. Learn more at goodfaithmedia.org. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly, and on this episode, we've got a very special guest with us all the way from Waco, Texas. Dr. Lenore Ride is the director of the Academy for Teaching and Learning and associate professor of interdisciplinary studies and philosophy at Baylor University. Wright's scholarly interests include theories and modes of self-representation and feminist philosophy. In 2006, she published The Philosopher's Eye, Autobiography, and The Search for the Self. Wright is also engaged in the scholarship of teaching and learning and overseas teaching-related initiatives at Baylor. She has published in Teaching Philosophy and the Journal of Interaction. Of instruction development. She is an academic consultant for the International Organization for Student Success, publisher of the College Portfolio for Success. She's received Baylor's Outstanding Professor Award in 2008 and 2009 for distinctive teaching. Dr. Wright is a guest this week to discuss her most recent book, Athena to Barbie Bodies, Archetypes, and Women's Search. It's available now wherever you purchase your books. Wow, Dr. Wright, you are a busy scholar. So, well, Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Mitch and Autumn, if I may call you Mitch and Autumn. I'm just so grateful to be here and excited to talk about the book. Always excited to talk about feminist philosophy and other things, how it intersects with faith, how it intersects with um, the institutions of higher education. I mean, all kinds of things we could get into here. Well, we're excited that you're here, and uh, thanks uh, for sending us an advanced copy of the book. The book is actually released this week, so uh, we're Woo-hoo! really excited that it's on the market now, and people are able to purchase it uh, at uh, Fortress Press, at Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Uh, so make certain after the interview, as uh, soon as you hit uh, stop, go to one of those sites and pick up the book, Athena to Barbie. Well, before we get into the book, and this is kind of off script, and I apologize for this, but you are a female philosopher, and even working through the book, you mentioned kind of the uniqueness of being a female philosopher. So how is it, what's it like being the, not only minority, but the minute minority within your discipline? 
Yeah, yes. Thank you for asking that. It, there are very few women still in philosophy, disproportionately low number. Sally Haslinger, by the way, at MIT has done great work tracking the status of women in philosophy and has good data to talk about where we are um, with respect to women in philosophy. It's tough. I mean, you you go to the American Philosophical Association meetings, and honestly, you, you walk into these huge ballrooms, and it's it's a sea of white men. It just is. Yeah. And so you're, wow, you know, how do you feel? It feels very exclusionary at times. I didn't have any women professors until grad school, and I was the only female philosophy major as an undergraduate. Great male mentors, but kind of missed that connection with Kind of female mentorship. And so was fortunate to have Dr. Anne-Marie Schultz, who's here at Baylor as a professor in graduate school. And then I intentionally chose to study under Carolyn Korsmeyer for my doctoral work and knew I wanted to study under a woman. So it's, it is tough. Um, Anne and I especially try to work with women students who are interested in philosophy and encourage them and support them and really just work through some of the challenges women face, both res with respect to subject matter, sometimes the subjects within philosophy, the subfields that women pursue, also you know, have a denigrated sure. status, um, ethics and aesthetics, for example, most women philosophers kind of veer that direction. And so there's some stereotyping that goes on, but also some denigration. So there's that, but then also for me, it's there's just no attention to, for example, the body. It's just mm -hmm. so connected to intellectual enterprises, logical analysis, language analysis, kind of the practice, especially of analytical philosophy, makes no space for the phenom the phenomenology of living as a woman, just that experience mm -hmm. of right. being a woman, and just not much philosophical reflection about it. Well, that's a great segue into the book. First of all, the title, Athena to Barbie, Bodies, Archetypes, and Women's Search, is outstanding. So whoever came up with the uh, the title, well done. However, before we get into the book's content, let's visit about why you chose to write this book. In the preface, you mentioned writing a journal article about pregnancy loss. You even stated, I know intimately the physical and emotional wreckage that accompanies pregnancy loss. So what about pregnancy loss challenged you to write this book? Yeah. Oh, that's a great question. And, and of course, it's partly a personal question, partly sure. a philosophical question. And for me, those always go in tandem. Um, so I'm always comfortable exploring kind of my own bodily and other experiences in the world. But yeah, so I, I've had multiple miscarriages and very challenging, very you know, just kind of coping, learning to cope with pregnancy loss and that idea, that anticipation of a human being in your life and that relational connection that you're already making um, during the, the phase of pregnancy and then to have that cut short, it was very devastating. And, and I learned not just for women, I mean, we endure kind of both the physical part of that as well as the psychological, but in at least our case, my husband, Henry, as well. And sort of it was it was surprising to me when at least the first the first miscarriage that we endured um, I learned that he'd gone to a men's breakfast at church and he was talking about it with, with men who then also said, yeah, my wife went through this. My wife had a miss and they were, and when he first told me this, I, my reaction, my gut reaction was that's personal information. Like that's personal medical. Sure, Why sure. would you share this? So it was a little bit, it took me, and then I realized very quickly, oh, he's enduring this too. I mean, he's, Again, not physically and in, in an embodied way, but he's working through this. So for us, I think, and especially for me, kind of drawing on my philosophical interests to explain and understand my own pregnancy loss, and then realizing, wow, as I look out at the literature, especially philosophical literature, there's not much. There's a dearth of information and reflection, philosophical reflection about pregnancy loss. There's lots, of course, especially among feminist literature about women's wombs and the body and kind of identity, but not much about that loss. So in that process of writing that article, which um, was therapeutic really in a way to write that and to research sure. that and read about other women's experiences, I then thought, okay, there's more work to do. Why don't I go further and just look at that tie between the wound activity, reproductivity, and female identity that might help me not only understand 
you know, why I'm experiencing and processing a loss in this way, but then also just, you know, how women are formed and constructed and viewed. Yeah. Well, Dr. Wright, first of all, just thank you so much uh, for being vulnerable. It is so refreshing to hear a scholar like yourself uh, share personal information because, you know, I think that uh, we can all agree that, you know, our theological formation is driven not only by our interaction with the text and our intellectual discipline, but also with our personal experiences. And so, uh, you know, what what we experience is shape how we think and, and how we do. So, Thank you so much for being vulnerable. That's very meaningful for us. So let's continue down this line of thinking. In the introduction, you write, wombs and women signify one another. Neither progressive politics nor postmodern critiques have undone their conceptual commingling. What do you mean that womb and woman signify one another? Yeah, great question. I know I get jargony in the book, so I apologize to the readers. I try to I try to write in a really accessible way, but sometimes, you know, that philosophical jargon comes through. So maybe I could clarify. I think for me, what I'm trying to get at is that culture has figured the female sex as a womb. So as a person mm-hmm. that gestates and bears children, nurtures and produces and inhabits then a kind of feminine domestic order. So woman's female signification kind of separates her, distinguishes her from man. So laboring as and even with a wombed body and then managing the valences of pregnancy can sometimes conceal critical, really essential elements of self-identity that are more directly accessible to men. And so women, because they're classified as bodily creatures rather than rational, Creatures historically, and Simone de Beauvoir lays this out historically in the second sex. So lots of ways to get at this idea, but just that idea that culturally woman and womb do signify one another. They don't necessarily exhaust one another, mm-hmm. but we very quickly, when we think woman, we think reproduction, like that's what's distinctive about her. And so for women in the book, I argue that can be, it can be freeing. There's an opportunity. And for me, there's a, there's a hopeful movement in this direction. It could be freeing to kind of have this identity and this bodily experience distinctive um, and different from the male experience. But it also, we know, historically has been extremely constraining for women. And that tie to the womb, to the body has restricted women's freedom in so many ways, you know, early, early access to education or other kinds of activities, political careers, even motherhood and career today. Mm-hmm. is challenging. So that's what I'm hoping to express when that, that kind of dual signification. Yeah. And then, so and if the womb signifies woman, then when you experience something like infertility or pregnancy loss, it's especially jarring when it's tied yes. to your identity or when you go to a point where you're not having children anymore, yes. there's this sort of like shifting your brain of, okay, wait a minute, what am I doing? So I'm Absolutely. really glad that you're continuing this conversation so thoughtfully. Thank you. Yeah, it's a sense of failure for a lot of women because that's, you know, if that's what it means to be a woman is to reproduce children and you cannot do that, let's say for biological reasons, you're infertile. Absolutely. You know, that feels like I I have failed to live up to kind of this standard, this um, ideal of womanhood. And frankly, we, we it's just designed to fail. We fail in every way in terms of, you know, our aesthetic appearance, you know, women, you know, constantly striving to be beautiful, to be, you know, ideally beautiful in some culturally determined way. We fail at that. And then of course the bodily, yeah, infertility, menopause, um, our associate pastor at my church this week, in fact, during one of his prayers, prayed for people struggling with infertility in their, in our church. And I, you know, never heard anyone offer prayer for couples kind of undergoing that. Yeah. Well, I think you did an absolutely great job uh, describing that. And uh, the book is just a home run as far as I'm concerned, because uh, just, it it does a great job. You did a great job laying all that out and, and uh, describing that for the reader. Now there, the the book is, is uh, composed of, 
four major chapters. Each chapter has a title. If we thought the title of the book was great, these chapter titles uh, are just as great. Chapter one is Delivering Mary, Womb of Sacred Space. Chapter two is Conquering Athena, Womb as, womb as Political Space. Chapter three is Subduing Venus, Womb as Erotic Space. And chapter three is Playing Barbie, Womb as Material Space. So these archetypes or these women that you chose for these chapters how did you land on these particular four? Yeah. Oh, that's a great question. Um, originally I just started with the concepts again. I, I, I apologize. I'm a philosopher. So I just started with these concepts in my mind of things like reproductivity, for example, um, sexuality, you know, these kinds of concepts of what is, what does this look like in the context of womanhood? And then I thought, well, that's, that it's a little bit abstract. Um, and talking with colleagues at Baylor, Doug Weaver, for example, in religion, who's a great friend, he's like, you need something concrete. You need image, you know, images that really helps. And though I gave a talk in which I laid out some of the images that are in the book, they're 25, by the way. And, and Doug goes, oh my gosh, yes, now I get it. Like I see it and I mm-hmm. can get it. And so I thought, okay, having sort of distilling some of these concepts into an archetype, which I do think is still in play, all of these, even ancient archetypes, Athena, for example, I wanted to be sure to capture those and help the reader make this much more concrete. And so that was, that was the hope. I, I think too, I mean, for me, I've always moved in that direction, um, Early in my in my childhood church, there was a woman in our church who started a club called the M&M Club, the Mary and Martha Club, huh? and it was just for little girls in the church, and we literally studied women in the Bible, and so that was my first, my first interest in women's studies. That was the seed for that interest in women's studies, but that's kind of hung with me, like looking for the women in philosophy, looking for women in the Bible, and now looking for female archetypes culturally. I think really does help cement what it is to be a woman. Yeah, and Dr. Wright, thanks for mentioning the illustrations because those were wonderful and they just added so much to the book as, as I was working through it. I mean, any autumn, we've got these you know, masterful paintings from the masters uh, throughout history. And we've got a photo of Beyonce. I mean, that's, that's the variety. Sounds of, well-rounded. <laughs> very, very well-rounded. Uh, it was mm-hmm. great. And so, I mean, the, the imagery attached. Yeah, there, there it is. She's showing oh, us. Uh, I love yeah, it. Uh, it's yes. fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it just, it, and I think uh, Dr. Weaver was right in offering that suggestion, but you made it happen. It, it was just it mm-hmm. really added to the book. So, so thank Thank you so much for adding those. It, it, it helped this uh, this male uh, guy figure it out. So thank you. Well, and us yeah. non-philosophers, too, to have something so approachable. You know, right. you know like I understand that. It's right. it's yeah, right. almost universal. Yeah. yeah. When the so book in- first arrived, our seven-year-old, Carl Hayes, opened it up. And he said, Mom, a lot of this is very inappropriate. <laughs> 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 and I thought, I thought, you betcha. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I love it. It's always good when your kids school you on what is not appropriate. <laughs> so, so I'm doing a good job, but also I'm the mama. So. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> so in the chapter about Mary, you write about woman as womb, which we've discussed some, a source of sanctifying activity. Um, however, you also conclude that a woman is not just a womb. And like we were chatting about a little bit earlier, tell us um, – a little bit more about how you drew from the notion that the womb is a sacred space, something we talk about a lot here at Good Faith Media, and that sometimes the sacred space is a positive thing. It's where civil rights were achieved. It's where, you know, big steps happened in our nation and, and, and us as a people and a culture. But then sometimes that sacred space is a dark street in Tulsa, Oklahoma, mm. where a horrible massacre happened, but it's still sacred. So can you talk a little bit about just that word sacred and how it, it involves the womb? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, because as you're already suggesting, it reads in different ways. It does, that word itself has different meanings and valences and associations absolutely for for Mary and that's that delivering Mary part you can see in those subtitles I'm you know there's a dual conception there of on the one hand it can be constraining and on the other hand it can be quite freeing and that's my hope is that 
is that Mary in particular, I think if we if we can conceive her fully as a woman with agency, with authority of her own and even embodied authority and not just a kind of passive submissive vessel, then her what she's doing, I mean, is is amazing. And of course, Christianity in different aspects, Catholics, Protestants, et cetera, we sort of value that and, and see it in different ways. But the fact that she can she can make this connection to God, to divinity through her body is, is powerful. It's a powerful activity. It can be an elevation of the body and the womb in particular, which again, historically and culturally, we tend to denigrate even you know, physical labor with the body now, very denigrated on a status. And, and I'd like to kind of recover positive and conception of laboring with the body. So I want it, I want it to be very positive in that sense. But I think we have to reckon with the fact that Old Testament readings, even though in Genesis, men and women are created in the image of God, both in God's image. Uh, most readings really conceive Eve as the seductress, as the first and worst sinner. And we have all of, you know, that women really are the source of immorality, et cetera. And so the new, even the New Testament picture of women, the idea is that you know, Jesus reverses that Edenic curse and that, you know, Galatians 3.28, men and women are, are both equal, God's prophetic word there. But um, it's we still struggle with women are told to keep silent. Women are told to be submissive to men. And we often associate immorality in women with their sexuality, with their bodily functions. And so purity culture, I talk about. Um, can in some ways reinforce centuries of theological thinking that women really are inferior to men. And Dr. Wright, I want to so pick I, up. I want yeah, to pick up please. on that because um, the, Athena to Barbie, I think, adds to this larger conversation right now taking place in the church and in the world regarding sexuality. Um, yeah. For you know, centuries or even millennia, millennia, we have had this conception of sexuality that is very binary, very uh, dualistic, uh, or very constrictive. And it's been defined by people in power, particularly white males throughout history. One of the things that I appreciated about the book, especially when you're talking about Mary and her virginity and how it was used throughout history as a signal for female virtue. Um, And then, of course, you mentioned the purity culture and all of its glory. Um, do you think that historically the church that has been predominantly controlled by white males, that the teaching about sexuality has been distorted? And if it's been distorted, in what ways are we making progress today? Because I think this is extremely important, not only the ramifications of this conversation, but in new ways of looking at biblical text. We've been talking about this wow. good faith media for many, many mm-hmm. uh, years. You know, we've only been in existence for a couple of years, but even prior to that, we've been talking about how the biblical text itself, sexuality permeates through these texts and, and how it becomes a a player within the narrative itself and, and how these stories work out. Uh, and it's not something to be denied, but something to be celebrated. And so tell us a little bit about where you think we are in our understanding of human sexuality. Yeah. Oh, that's such a good question. Such an important question. Um, Yeah. I mean, even my students at Baylor every now and then in that safe space of the classroom, they'll they'll confess or reveal you know, their own church experiences and the, the lack of talk about sexuality and or kind of, as you say, a skewed conception perhaps of sexuality. And so you, I hear kind of, and I see the spectrum of that among my students, especially, and of course at my own church. I mean, there's so, we know lately, there's so much damage that's been done, unfortunately, by the church, by emphasizing purity culture and or just virginity interpreted biologically, which does, and it doesn't have to be. I mean, that's just, as you say, men have gone down that path and it has restricted women's freedom. But now, I mean, I think about the damage of young women in terms of dating and love, 
um, sexual abuse and rape and how in some ways that's kept silent in the church or by the church. It's not, you know, it's not something we, we want to talk about. Even our LGBTQ uh, brothers and sisters, I think, gosh, I think about conversion therapy and what they're told from, you know, the pulpit and, you know, we know the trauma that coincides with conversion therapy, for example. And so I, I'm, I want to be hopeful. I think there, there are signs of hope that we are ready to have a reckoning around sexuality, at least to some degree. But as you know, churches are still split mm-hmm. over whether to be welcoming and affirming. They're, they're really split maybe because of our incapacity to deal very well or in a healthy way with sexuality. And it seems as though they are, they're holding on with white knuckles to this uh, historical understanding or just traditional understanding of sexuality overall, uh, whether that yeah. is gender issues, whether that yeah. is male-female leadership, uh, whether that is uh, yes. welcoming and affirming of LGBT. It, it, it's though they're not willing to, to change their way of understanding and applying this, this, this discussion that we're having. And I think it has a lot to do with power. Uh, and even sexuality, whether it is skewed from the patriarch, is still sexuality, but it's about trying to control others through that male-dominated sexuality. Absolutely. 100% agree. Absolutely. Yeah. It's And so it's, it's a discomfort with sexuality and maybe even the body. Mm-hmm. The body is oh, so there we, you go. Once we've oh, decided yeah. the body is bad, the body is sinful, like anything, almost any performance, anything we do, with our bodies then become suspect. And so, right, then we have all these norms and constrictions. Right, and it goes exactly, it goes right back to your conversation about uh, Mary and her virginity being a signal for female virtue. Because for history, and even some Christians today still believe that she maintained her virginity somehow, even though she had children after Jesus, she maintained this virginity some magical way because it was so important that the mother of Jesus be held in a certain physical space. Uh, yes. So, and psychic uh, space, yeah. I would say. Auden, when, when you get the book, you'll see this Max Ernst painting I have of Mary disciplining Jesus. Actually, she's spanking him. And we, I, my students were glancing through the book. And honestly, it was a male student who said to me, I never met, I never even thought about what Mary would do to discipline. Like I never thought of her as a mother in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She had this elevated status of the, she birthed Jesus. But after that, like, no, I He said, I never even thought of that. And some of the women's dudes were nodding too. And I said, isn't that interesting that we haven't enabled that conception of Mary right. disciplining Jesus to emerge? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so in, in the second chapter, you tackle the speaking of power, you tackle the womb as political space. Now, there are the standard talking points about women's reproductive health, which we've covered extensively here on the podcast. Um, but you take this topic to another level. You write about Athena's archetype. She erupts from the male mind, encoded to perform pregnancy as a political practice. Athena births civic ideas, institutions, and the public good. What did you mean uh, when you talked about pregnancy as a political practice? Yeah, great question. And and I love Athena. I love because she really exemplifies the problem women face, which is the exclusion of the feminine from that kind of masculine political order and kind of that, just right, that all goes back to power. And so she disrupts that. Um, it's interesting, you know, her mythology is that she, that Zeus swallows her mother I mean, he's threatened by her mother's power and he swallows her so that she can't be born from her mother's uterus. But while inside Zeus, her mother gets to work creating armor for her. So when she is, you know, when he, she creates that headache for him and she's born out of his head, uh, not from a uterus. I mean, she, she's armored up for the male world thanks to her mother, interestingly. But um, she, she, yeah, really she the goal of, that's the goal of most moms who have daughters, right? That's what we're trying to do. <laughs> exactly. I'm in here in my closet, forging exactly. the armor exactly. <laughs> for my girls. Yeah. yeah. And I talk to women and I, I think I do this myself too. If I have a, 
a big event or something, you know, that's high level, high pressure, and I know I need to perform well. We talk about armoring up with our makeup, with our jewelry, with, you know, the way we appear. It's like, we got to armor up for this. So, you know, I think there are different ways to do that. But Athena, yeah, she's fascinating because she doesn't have children, but she births the Polis. She births the state. Mm-hmm and is herself, you know, military leader and is really performing a masculine role. But of course, that's what makes her threatening. So even today for women who choose career over family, again, they become very suspect. And, and even women will whisper, you know, why, why does so-and-so not have children? You know, can she, can she not have, you know, the expectation is, well, you will, even if you have a career, even if you're a political leader, you will have children because otherwise, as you've said, Autumn, that's a kind of failure of womanhood or a performance of womanhood mm-hmm. that's normative. Mm-hmm. So for me, you know, if we could reimagine that, well, what if in the shadow of Athena, women could appropriate pregnancy as a kind of political ideal and think, what can I give birth to besides children? You know, what can I create or construct? And that's that's there in the philosophical corpus. Socrates describes himself as a midwife. Often, uh, Frederick Nietzsche's ideal is to get to the state of being childlike and creative and create, just as God created and called God's creation good. That's Nietzsche's conception of what we should all be engaged in. And so for even political leaders, women like Hillary Clinton or Margaret Thatcher or Elizabeth Warren, I mentioned these in the book, um, what if um, they weren't challenged to subvert seemingly essential parts of womanhood like sexuality or like motherhood for the sake of political advancement or career? Mm -hmm. What if we could enable a more holistic, embodied conception of woman. So for me, certainly the kind of the politics of the body come into play when I think about political space, but also what would it mean to just operate in the world in that male kind of political space um, equally and just get in there and say, well, I'm going to create a vaccine or here's what I'm going to do. It doesn't matter if I have kids or not. let these working fathers have some of those roles, right? You never hear that term, a working father. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And that too, I mean, my hope would be that we can free up men to engage in some caregiving activities and that they don't become stigmatized Mm -hmm. uh, more, you know, that's not perceived as subversive if, if men engage in caregiving or other kinds of activities. You know, when I was, when I was reading this uh, chapter about Athena and, this idea of womb as political space, I kept thinking about the number of illustrations throughout scripture where women were able to uh, birth children, but also birth ideas and concepts and governments uh, and safety. You think about Rahab and, and how she brought safety to uh, the Hebrews as they were crossing the Jordan. You think about uh, Queen Esther, obviously. You think about Ruth. Uh, in the New Testament, you think about uh, Priscilla. Uh, these ideas, I mean, it's very clear that Paul set under a, a Priscilla to, to learn more from her because she was such a, an astute scholar. Um yeah. So, I mean, it, there's just so many you know, things that you, you bring to light uh, as I read through the book that uh, was just was real, really brilliant. Well, I wish we had time to get to Venus and to Barbie, and our listeners are going to be so disappointed that we didn't get to those two chapters, but that's why they have to go buy the book immediately after they turn off this podcast, because each of these uh, chapters are outstanding. So, Dr. Wright, at this point, we would love to have you read an excerpt of your book. So uh, we, you know, we are glad that you joined us here at Good Faith Media or and Good Faith Weekly. And we've got one more question after you read your excerpt, but Autumn and I are just going to step back from the microphone, let you take it away, and enjoy this excerpt from Athena to Barbie, Bodies, Archetypes, and Women's Search for Self. Thank you so much. I'm going to read from the conclusion. No surprise, I guess. And uh, then we'll, we'll talk a little more. Mary delivers, Athena conquers, Venus subdues, and Barbie plays the masculine order. They mother, organize, harmonize, and subvert the male world, respectively, 
through their uniquely signified performances of womanhood. Although these archetypes of woman do not resolve the centrality of the womb for female identity, each typifies the lived reality of the female subject. Together, they encapsulate the sources of wound identity and the meaning of womanhood that women navigate even today. Their shared value lies in their illustrative movement from woman as sacred vessel to consumer good, a movement from submission to subversion. Each archetype of woman is wanting. There are no permanent or fixed pathways to female agency and identity. But, and here is the good feminist news, there is a promise, a hope, a heuristic move embedded in these icons. Mary discloses the body's spiritual force. Athena gives birth to ideas. Venus saves intimacy from its cultural impoverishment. And Barbie subverts the womb in appealing ways. While the pregnant subject is not identical to her body, the lived experience of pregnancy complicates her self-understanding. This book is a feminist call to reconstitute the meaning and role of pregnancy in women's search for self. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Dr. Lenore Wright, thank you so much for being a guest today on Good Faith Weekly. The book, again, is Athena to Barbie, Body to Bodies, Archetypes, and Women's Search for Self. You can pick up your copy of Athena to Barbie at your local publisher, whether that's Barnes & Noble, Fortress Press, or Barnes & Noble, uh, or Amazon. Uh, it is out and available, so make certain you pick up a copy. But Dr. Wright, before we let you go, we've got one last question for you that we ask all of our guests, and Autumn has the distinct honor of asking it. Yes, thank you for reading that excerpt. I feel like you've already told us a lot, and we're so thankful uh, for you taking time to talk with us. Um, our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. So in light of our conversation today and your book coming out today, what is your more to tell? My more to tell is that women must have standing over the body, both in its kind of real and metaphoric productivity we should all be valued for the labor we perform. We should all have license to equitably engage and shape the world in which we find ourselves and be free to explore and construct who and what we are in literal ways and figurative ways by having children or not having children without social contempt or marginalization or projected deviance or loss of authority or masculinizing effect. That's, that's my hope. I hope that men too can find some hope here. As we mentioned, that men could find like women, diverse archetypes of what it means to live as a man or live as a woman and that those can be freeing and generative. That's always my hope. I, I do wanna say too, I think because culturally we've put these things in opposition, you can also be a feminist and a Christian. Mm. And, and I hear often, you know, my students, especially feminism is a bad word, you know, no, 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 can't, can't talk about feminism. Um, so that's a little more to tell too, is let's all go explore how we can be both feminist and Christians or how we can both be invested in justice and justice movements and deeply embedded in our faith traditions. Amen. 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 Dr. Lenore Wright, philosopher, theologian, and now prophet. Thank you so oh. much for being with us this week. Oh, I'm so honored, Mitch and Autumn, and thank you for having me. To our listeners, we want to thank you for tuning in this week. Uh, we appreciate uh, each and every week that you dial in to Good Faith Weekly, and we will be back next week with another special guest. And until then, keep living good faith.